Hi, welcome to Enlighten Me. I'm Rodney Crowther. I'm Eddie Sanchez. Hey, Eddie, have you seen that show Last of Us? I haven't, but I've played the video game before. Ah, I haven't played the game. I only watched the show. And I like was really hyped when I watched the first episode because it starts off set right here in San Marcos and Austin. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, and I was wondering if they filmed that here. Yeah, I was wondering that too. So I went and looked it up and man, they filmed that in Alberta, Canada. They made a fake Central Texas in Canada. Oh man, I wonder why they didn't film it here. Yeah, I don't know. There's been other movies and TV shows shot here. Like Piranha was shot back in the 80s, that horror movie with the killer fish was shot right in Spring Lake. That's awesome. And like Friday Night Lights was shot around here. Steve McQueen back in the 70s shot a movie here. So like, it's not like it's new for Hollywood to come out here. Did you know that there's actually a film studio being built out here in San Marcos? So I imagine that there's going to be a lot more filming taking place. I heard a little bit about that, but I I haven't like gone into the details of it. It's called the Hill Country Studios and it's being built on 200 acres close to the Edwards Aquifer Recharge Zone. Wow, that's probably going to get some people's attention. We're very protective of our water resources here. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of questions that the community had about what this meant for the environment, for the economy, for the community in general. And those were a lot of the same questions that I had. So I actually had the opportunity to talk to a couple of our faculty members from uh, Texas State University to get some insight on that. Oh, great. Who'd you talk to first? So the first person I spoke with was Dr. Robert Mace from the Meadow Center. My name is Robert Mace. I'm executive director for the Meadow Center for Water and the Environment. I'm also a professor of practice in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies. And uh, he provided me with some pretty interesting insights, and he definitely alleviated, I suppose, some of my concerns that I had. So could you tell us a little bit about what your role entails as the uh, director for the Metal Center? Sure. So so I run the center. So there's administrative tasks, um, oversee uh, an excellent team that does research on watersheds, water supply, water quality. Um, a lot of that work is in the in the hill country, uh, as well as along the Texas coast. Um, we've got a, a group that um, runs the education programs that we have on site. So we run the glass bottom boats and uh, education programs for for school kids. And then we also do just, just quite a bit of research, including on on climate change and its impacts on water resources. That leads into what I wanted to talk with you about today. We have the Hill Country Studios, which is a $267 million project being built on 209 acres. What sort of potential environmental or systemic issues do you think could arise with that development? Well, anytime somebody builds on on property that's that's not been built on before, that was natural before, um, has an impact. Uh, you're, you're putting a you know footprint of a building, um, parking lots, roads, sidewalks that uh, is is impervious cover essentially. So you've, you've covered up the local area. Um, depending on how the landowner you know interacts with the landscape, that could have some impacts. For example, if if they're applying a lot of um, fertilizers and and things to kill bugs and bacteria, um, you know, that can have impacts on surface water, you know, if it washes off during rains or on the aquifers, if it's infiltrating into the, into the soil and deeper into the ground. Um, there's, you know, wastewater. Um, we have to deal with, with that. So depending on where wastewater is going, if it's going to a septic system, and that septic system isn't working 
as it should, then that can introduce um, contaminants into into groundwater, which ultimately uh, could come out at surface water through through springs, such as San Marcos Springs. Okay, yeah, we definitely do not want wastewater running into our like clean, pure river. So how are they going to stop it? I actually had the same question, and so I asked Dr. Mace about that. You know, one of the things that uh, we pride ourselves on here at the Meadow Center is like helping organizations, builders to um, you know minimize their environmental footprint, um, whether it's environmental impacts or impacts on water resources, and so. And when, when I guess soon after the controversy broke out, um, I did reach out to them to see if there was, you know, a way that we could um, help them uh, achieve their goals and, and minimizing the footprint. And in talking with them, um, they were, um, you know, doing a number of things to achieve, you know, minimize their footprint. You know, it's it's their the plans at that time had them putting their buildings kind of in a dense area and then having quite a bit of green space um, around them. Um, they had mitigation um, of um, stormwater runoff. So you know, runoff that comes off of um, parking lots and things like that. So rather than just um, running that into um, a creek that then might leak into the aquifer, you know, they're collecting that and, and there's a kind of bioremediation that, that occurs um, through these engineered um, systems. Could you explain what bioremediation means? That's using the natural environment, um, like like naturally occurring bacteria and things like that, to um, um, treat um, water. So, so you know, if a parking lot, if you look real closely, at water runs off a parking lot. You know, if somebody's leaking oil, you'll see the sheen. Um, you know, that can go into some engineered swales that then uses bacteria in the soil to naturally remediate and attenuate those contaminants, you know, before they go deeper into the into the ground, into the aquifer. There was a quote that I read from the San Marcos assistant city manager. There was something in particular that they said that I wanted to see if you could maybe explain that to us. Because when I read it, uh, I really didn't know exactly what they were talking about. But anyways, their quote is, the studio is promising its design provides 48% impervious cover and stormwater recovery mechanisms. Uh, are you familiar with what, I guess, you know, impervious cover is and what some of these stormwater recovery mechanisms are? And if, if so, could you explain that to us? So first on the stormwater recovery, um, that that's kind of like that bioremediation stuff I was talking about. So, so rather than pushing stormwater off the site as quickly as possible, which is traditional um, development, you know, it'll be, it'll be retained, um, which has a benefit to minimizing downstream flooding, but then also there's that you know, remediation effect, letting solids fall out. And depending what methods they use, it could be the bioremediation component. The impervious cover is related to structures, concrete that covers up the ground. It doesn't allow rainwater that falls to percolate and, and touch the ground. So that percentage is saying how much of their total land area is going to um, be covered up and and not accessible to to rainfall. Um, my sense is that's on the, on the lower side. You know, if you go look at some of the big box retail stores where it's just a field of concrete, um, you know, that previous cover there is surely much higher than than that um, what fifty percent that uh, that you quoted. 
Um, and that comports with, you know, the plans that I saw where they were congregating their buildings into the center and then building a buffer around the outside. And I think also that's um, a good design for them because it's like sound studios and things. And so, so they want to minimize outside, outside noise from affecting what they're doing inside the buildings. In consideration of all the growth happening here in Central Texas and in San Marcos, how can we better balance the needs of the greater good while doing our best to avoid negatively affecting the population and environment? Um, great, great question. Um, you know, one method that that folks have used across the state, including um, on the recharge zone for the Edwards Aquifer and other parts of the aquifer, is conservation easements. So buying the development rights to allow the recharge zone to remain in its in its natural state. If you can't do that, because you have to have a willing seller to do that, plus you got to have the the cash to be able to buy that. And it's very expensive to do that, particularly you get close to a, a community like San Marcos or a city. Um, the next best thing is to develop in a way that minimizes the, you know, the footprint of the building, both literally, but then also um, you know, the footprint in terms of like water use, um, how much water it's shedding downstream that, that could um, amplify floods. Would the runoff potentially affect Spring Lake? Um, it's, it could. Is Spring Lake a protected body of water? Um, kinda. <laughs> <laughs> um, the species that are in Spring Lake, um, some of those are designated by the federal government as endangered species. Those are protected. And so to a certain degree, Spring Lake and the springs are protected to protect those species. So that's, that's why I answered the way it is. No, so there is no direct protection of the springs in Spring Lake. Um, they continue to flow because of the Endangered Species Act um, and the endangered species that live in them. Okay, yeah, I've lived in this area around 20 years, and, you know, I've always enjoyed being out on the river or hiking on the trails. And, of course, you always see, if you've ever been out there, you're never out there alone. There's always other people paddleboarding or tubing or cycling or doing whatever. People love the outdoors here. It's a huge part of, like, why people come here. So, you know, any big development comes to town or anywhere in this region, I know it gets a lot of attention from people who want to protect the environment. So did Dr. May share any of his perspective on the protests that have surrounded the studio? I definitely got Dr. May's input on that. Well, it, it's, you know, it's great that people are expressing their concern about development and expressing their concern about particularly development over the aquifer, um, which, you know, very well could have an impact on, on the springs and the river. I'm a fatalist at heart. <laughs> and so, you know, my personal opinion on that is like, well, you know, it's it's private property. There hasn't been a third party to come in and buy that property to preserve it. Um, and given that that hasn't happened, then, you know, it is the right of that owner to develop that property. This is going to sound awful because it's like, well, you know, it could have been a junkyard with that, you know, recycles PCBs or something. 
um, or it could have been a big box store. My understanding is the zoning would have allowed much denser development on the property. And you know, it seemed like the, the folks that are developing the property you know, were aware of the concerns and were, were doing some things to minimize their impact. Um, I've dealt with developers who are like, they're real clear. It's like, you can't, you can't tell me what to do. I'm gonna do whatever the hell I want. Um, so these folks just seem much more open and recognizing that there's an impact there and, and seeking to, to minimize it. Is there anything that I can do when I go home to help with water conservation, to help with protecting the waterways in my area? Just uh, you know, making decisions to minimize your, your water use and your water footprint. Um, and that, that can be actually really easy, you know, having water sense rated um, fixtures, energy sense rated appliances um, will automatically decrease your water use. And then making choices on your outdoor landscape. So going more towards air escape um, and natural landscaping um, will minimize the need for you to irrigate outdoors. I think also, being aware of where your water comes from. Most Texans don't know where their water comes from. And then being attentive to the, those water issues and then building that information um, into the decisions you make when you go to the voting booth. And go to the voting booth. You know, voting um, is, you know, it's, it's the folks that we elect that hold various parties accountable, make the laws that turn into the rules that govern how our world works. And so um, voting is, is key as well. Dr. Mace makes a great point. Everybody being involved is the best way for us to protect our like unique environmental resources here. Um, and when it comes to voting, you know, the other issue that really gets people out to the polls is the economy. Yeah, and I actually took that into consideration when fleshing out this topic, because I know that it wasn't just about the, the ecological effects that this studio would have in the region, but also what that would mean for uh, the community economically. And, you know, if there are opportunities that would arise with with the growth and development of the studio. Yeah, with the great business school we've got here, I bet you could find somebody who had a little more information about what kind of positive impacts we could have from this. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I actually reached out and spoke with Dr. Joni Charles from the McCoy College of Business. I teach a number of classes. I'm a microeconomist, so I teach the introductory um, level of economics, uh, principles of microeconomics. I also teach a, a course called environmental economics. Oh, what is microeconomics? I think Dr. Charles can explain that a lot better than I can. Yeah. So it, you know, you, most people are familiar with the macroeconomics. So you hear things about the economy um, in a broad sense, um, inflation level, employment level. And what microeconomics does is it looks at the decisions that consumers make within the economy, households make, and also the decision making process of uh, firms within the economy, and then the way that firms are, firms are organized within the economy. I know that you focus on groundwater, right? Mm -hmm. So is there a tie-in between um, that and, I guess, microeconomics, or how, how do you tie that in your own work? There is, because a lot of times you hear groundwater in terms of um, 
what it means with respect to hydrogeology. And I'm always interested in what's behind the decisions that people make when they use groundwater. And so my most recent research, what I did was to conduct a survey, not only to find out what people's perceptions and attitudes were toward groundwater, but also I collected some survey comments about how they felt about um, the um, administration of groundwater. And then I've also done research when I've gone around to different groundwater conservation districts and talked to um, those who are responsible for the governance of groundwater, the uh, professionals that are responsible for it. So micro has to do with looking at individuals and what motivates their decisions and the implications of those decisions. So that is how my teaching interest ties into my most recent research work. Talking about the paper that you had done, I actually read through that and uh, I saw that quite a few people have a belief that there should be enough uh, groundwater to sustain us for the next you know, 50 years. We're seeing a huge uh, population growth here in Texas. And I just thought that was kind of interesting that it seems as if um, people may not realize how, how challenging it can be to ensure that water needs are met by municipalities and industries and all those things. Sure, yeah. And there were two aspects to uh, respondents' comments. One was that people seemed to be pretty optimistic about there being enough groundwater. Now, this was done maybe five years or so ago, but people were really optimistic about groundwater, meeting the amount of groundwater and how it would meet needs um, currently at both the state and local level, but they were less optimistic about the future. And so the question was, I think in the next 25 years, how do you feel about um, our ability to meet the needs with respect to groundwater supply? And how do you feel about the future in, in regards to you know groundwater? Well, I tell you, after the last three weeks when we've had a lot of heat and a lot of drought, <laughs> I think it'll make anybody... Um, less optimistic because, of course, we haven't had that much rain. We had quite a bit in May. It seems like I was on vacation then. But since then, very little. And so, of course, um, groundwater is recharged by um, what happens on the surface. And without very much rain, um, it seems like that rain may have helped to recharge the groundwater levels. But, um, you know, we still have July and August to go. So. Note to our listeners, as you're hearing this, it is now probably late August, early September. It is still bone dry. It's over 100 degrees. Just ask our farmers in Texas. The drought is real. Is there anything that kind of grabs your attention about, I don't know, issues that might arise, you know, down the road with with the growth of uh, the studio? Yeah, and that's a very well put question because um, I think there are definitely some challenges so going back, like I said, there are tremendous opportunities. First of all, with San Marcos, it's going to bring a diversity to the types of jobs that are going to be brought to the area. Um, as you know, San Marcos has been able to attract uh, sort of warehouse and industrial type of jobs. And this is going to be more a knowledge-based opportunity for people in the area. Um, the people that will be employed um, all along the line, not just involved in media and film, but also in the various service industries. What goes on in that complex is going to be state-of-the-art, so that's going to be important for as a collaborative space for not only business professionals, but industry professionals, um, those who are involved at the university. It's going to be good for 
people who have curious minds, who have enterprising minds. Um, and it also could be a tourist destination, I think. Um, oh, yeah, down, I hadn't really thought down, about that. Down yeah, the line, yeah. Now, we have to be careful about that, and I'll get to that in just a second. And then they've promised to hire, and we'll see how this pans out, but they've promised to hire a number of full-time, well-paid employees um, and additional contract workers, and then provide internships. So those are the opportunities, just a, a, a broad array of different benefits that it um, brings. Oh, I hadn't really thought about tourism as a possible benefit to this. Yeah, I honestly hadn't either. And so when she mentioned it, it really um, sparked my interest. And so she she talked about this aspect of the studio. You know, anytime a movie's being filmed, it attracts attention. And so um, once these facilities are built and finished, I can imagine that if there's going to be a shoot at any particular time, Um, tourists in the area are going to be attracted to come to that. But also just knowing that there's a film studio, just like if you go to Florida, it's going to attract people to come and want to visit there. And so very often tourism, the the impact on tourism is cited as one of the areas that are going to contribute to the benefits of having something like that in the area. The question is whether or not that is going to be a destination for tourists or um, whether or not um, visiting Hill Country Studios is just going to be something on the way to the river. You know? uh, so talking about the benefits and opportunities, there's, a, uh, there's an amount that is associated with the project. So it's said to cost $267 million. How much of that money actually comes into the city? How much of that actually comes into the region? I guess, you know, how does it actually affect the people of San Marcos in the central Texas area? There's a lot of potential in 267 million. That's the that's the, the the value, the cost of the building. But in terms of how once that project is finished, how will the benefits trickle through the local and regional economy? And um, you refer to that as the economic impact. And so some of the questions that arise when you're thinking about that is, when you build that 267 million facility, what is the impact of a dollar spent on jobs that are created, on goods and services that are produced, on income that people who are involved in being interacting with that complex, the income that they make. When you hear someone talking about, oh, it's great to bring something like this to the, to the local region, the question is, how are you going to measure? Uh, I mean, there's some, some ways of measuring, but what are the details of what you're going to include in um, assessing what that dollar benefit is of everything that's spent in that industry? And as you know, not only do these production companies come to Texas for because it's basically a low-cost state. But that's a very critical question to ask if they're coming for in, with the expectation that the labor that they're going to hire is not going to cost as much as it would in California or on the East Coast, like in New York. Well, yeah, I did read that, you know, San Marcos was giving some pretty interesting tax incentives and tax breaks to the developers to attract the studio here. But I'm not really sure how that's going to play in the long run and still benefit the city. Did Dr. Charles have any insight on how that issue is going to work? Yeah, she definitely talked about that point. The important thing to consider is what kind of incentives are offered. Um, States are competing with each other to attract the movie and TV industry. 
and some have thrown a lot of money at these industries. Uh, one example that's very often touted is Georgia, and um, you know they've been criticized for going overboard and giving giving incentives. Now they'll say it's paying off, um, but the question is what what form do those incentives take? Is it going to be tax breaks? Is it going to be subsidies? Is um, if more credits or subsidies are given than the production company or industry actually uses, um, do, does the state get a refund of those? Um, any unfunded, I mean, uh, unused tax incentive or, or credit, um, will the company be able to sell those to other entities? You know, there, there are lots of ways where incentives are good and that can be um, uh, used by the company to defray some of the expenses of setting up, and of course, no one's going to argue with that. But the question is, um, is is the is the state or the local government going to be able to actually see the payoff from those incentives? So all those are important when assessing whether what's the impact of those tax incentives and what it's going to cost. When companies uh, are incentivized to come to a local area, the question is. How does it impact the local community and neighborhoods around that area? Um, and to take it back a little bit, you had mentioned about the city providing uh, tax breaks, you know, potentially for, for this development. Um, there is a statistic that I read or a number that I read, and I was just curious how this works with, with tax breaks. So the city will reportedly receive $11.5 in taxes over the course of a decade from, from this construction. You know, if, if we're giving them tax breaks for the first five years, I'm assuming that means we don't get a single dollar until that five-year break is over, and then I, I'm just curious, how does that work? Well, you know, there so there will be less tax revenue that the city will get because they're not paying certain taxes like property taxes. Um, and then over the five-year period, um, more less and less of those tax breaks will be um, given to the company. And then the company's still required to pay school taxes. Okay, so I see how San Marcos used incentives to help get the studio here. But um, really, I'd really like to know what's the upside long term for people who already live here? Well, the local San Marcos resident is a taxpayer. And so the assumption that the city council is making is that even though they are sacrificing some tax revenues for a certain amount of time, there are spillover benefits and that um, residents in the local area will benefit from having um, this kind of facility that is going to provide jobs and they will be, um, they will need transportation, they will be ordering food, they will be looking for accommodations. And so that, um, you know, the average Joe or Jane Blow will benefit from, um, you know, the, 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 the location of the studio. I saw an estimate of how many jobs will be provided, both um, high-paying jobs and contract workers. Um, the assumption is that, and the hope is that many of those contract workers will come from the area. But if that means that a lot of workers are brought from outside of the area into San Marcos, then that might displace some local residents, or it may push up the housing costs for local residents. Um, that's important to consider. If those jobs stay here and 
are created within the San Marcos community, then I think most taxpayers will be happy with that. How do we balance the economic growth that we're seeing, you know, in San Marcos, in Central Texas, in this uh, this Austin-San Antonio corridor? How do we balance that growth with our ecological and environmental concerns? Very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> that's what how that's how I answer that. Um, you know, there are so many definitions of sustainability, but I think one common thread that runs through all of them is that. Um, sustainability means you have to balance um, your economic activity, which includes things like growth, with um, the impact that it has on your natural environment and um, and then the environmental services that that natural environment provides. And so, um, it, I th- I think it really requires not only attention to keeping that balance but also being honest and transparent about what the trade-offs are and then addressing any negative impacts as quickly as possible. Is is the ecological aspect, does that kind of make you more concerned than anything? I'm excited. I'm excited um, not only for the opportunities to my students, but also I'm excited that... Um, San Marcos is looking to diversify and take advantage of the growth and uh, and complement the economic growth in the area with opportunities that are being given to residents who need those economic opportunities. I, I think from my perspective, what needs to happen is, like I said, constant vigilance and a recognition that it's not just water, but there are all kinds of resources that are being used, that will be used, and um, and attention to the environmental impact is going to be have to be addressed from multiple perspectives. I'm just happy that um, when the topic of incentives given to the Hill Country Studios was brought up that apparently there was a lot of interest generated. And I hope to continue to see that, that um, the city of San Marcos and its residents are paying attention. Um, they're not just excited about the prospect of, of um, jobs and employment and um, income being generated but they are aware that their quality of living depends on asking hard questions. And they did that at the city council meeting. They organized, but I think it's incumbent upon everyone listening that um, they continue to ask hard questions, that they be observant, um, uh, and that will make a successful partnership between the studios and the city and region and even the university. We'll be right back after this. When you go to Texas State, there's never a shortage of things to do. From engineering and opera to esports and fencing, we have it all and more. Listen to our new podcast, Try at Texas State, to learn more with me, Giselle, about the kind of organizations and programs that make Texas State so special, and to take a deep dive into niche subjects that find its way into our everyday lives. Listen on Apple Music or Spotify, and episodes release every other Wednesday.
that's great that she brought up the fact that Hill Country Studio is going to have a chance to partner with the university. I mean, right here we've got Live Oak Studio. We've got a sound recording technology department. We've got one of the best theater departments in the country. And I know they have, like, students that do a lot of behind-the-scenes work. There's just, like, so many students who could benefit from having that resource here. So I actually had the opportunity to speak with Dean Fleming from the College of Fine Arts and Communication. This is my 20, about to start my 25th year here at Texas And he broke down exactly how our Bobcats would be able to benefit from the opportunities that are going to arise with this development. How excited are you for the Hill Country Studios to be coming here to San Marcos? No, very excited. This is a, a game-changing opportunity for San Marcos and for Texas State. Uh, they're planning on building, you know, one of the largest uh, film and TV production studios in the country. And uh, it's will have 12 sound stages, two of them for a virtual production like you do with uh, Star Wars Mandalorian. And right now they've got a plan for two different phases. So they'll build about half of it and then, uh, then another half. And, and they, they have some of the truly uh, top talent in the, in the country in terms of film production studios involved. Could you explain to me what the virtual production is? Because that's the first time I'd heard that term. Yeah, virtual production, um, I said, their plan is like two of the 12 sound stages. And it's a giant LED wall. So everything is projected. If, if, Star Wars Mandalorian is the best known example, but there's about, about a dozen other films and TV shows that do it. And so it really changes production in that it's, it's all done on giant LED walls. And so you don't have to go to different locations. You don't have to worry about the weather. And from, from, a, from a technical standpoint, it changes that you do everything up front, whereas normally you'd hear people say, oh, we'll fix it in post, fix it in post-production. Instead, you're doing it all up front and getting all that digital world up there. And I, I was up uh, actually testifying in front of the legislature about virtual film production institutes, and one of the other persons there noted like, hey, you could, in the morning, you could, you know, be filming Washington, D.C., the Capitol, and then... An hour later, you you flip the screen, and now you're in Paris, and different things like that. And so it is kind of, again, it's creating the virtual world via the high-end LED, and it's really a direction the industry is going to be moving more and more. Oh man, that would be so cool if they, we could get Disney to start filming at Hill Country Studios here, um, like like season four or whatever they're up to in The Mandalorian now. Maybe get a uh, Boko rescuing uh, Baby Yoda. That would that would make my day seriously but the technology available now seems like a real game changer uh, for the filmmaking industry so what's that going to mean for our students that was the very next thing that i asked dean fleming they knew they wanted to partner with us at texas state they uh, deliberately picked san marcus as the location for it uh, they knew we had a kind of a rising film program and so we've had some brief conversations about uh, involving our students, whether it be internships, uh, using some of their facilities, uh, even um, one of their, their new um, chief uh, operating officers, Kevin Barr, came over from Netflix. When, he, when they were interviewing Kevin, they brought him down to Texas State to tour our new Live Oak film and TV studio. And so it's been kind of this idea of some type of partnership as we go forward. At this point, they got to finish getting their whole business you know, up and going before we can really get into it. But they know that we have, uh, I said, a vibrant film and TV program and that we place a lot of students in the behind the scenes jobs uh, that have been happening all throughout Texas. What does that mean for, for the region in general? Um, I mean, do you see do you see this becoming like the new Hollywood almost? Again, when I was at the legislature, there was some of the legislators said, hey, we really should be kind of the new Hollywood. To get those major... Um, 
productions, you, you need to have a film incentive program. Uh, that, that's why uh, Atlanta took off and Pinewood Studios there, Albuquerque, things like that. Uh, and so this past legislative session, um, the legislature approved uh, $200 million for this film incentive program. And it had that's about a 400% increase from the last uh, legislative session on it. And they have estimated that they'll spend um, about a billion dollars in Texas film production in the next year via this incentive program. And one of the things they did is they did make it that 55% of the crew has to have a Texas resident. So, so basically they built it in that you had to have a, a, a majority of the people working on it to be Texas residents. And where, where this really comes into is I've got in my theater and fine arts dean probably two, 300 young alums that are working in the film and television industry. Most of them are from Texas. Most of them would prefer to stay in Texas. Where do they live? Atlanta, Albuquerque, LA, because that's where you had more of the film and TV production. And it's one of these things in this incentive, it, it really becomes the equivalent of a full-time job. You, you know how we give you know, tax incentives to Samsung, Apple, whatever. It's the same thing. As long as there's enough consistent work, people will stay in Texas to do all these behind-the-scenes jobs that are out there. And again, just, just an example, um, uh, HBO's Love and Death filmed up in Austin recently. Uh, we had 14 young alums that worked on that. Uh, Walker, Texas Ranger, the reboot that's been filming here. Again, over a dozen young alums working on that. Uh, Fear of the Walking Dead is filmed here quite a bit. Again, a number of alums working on that. So again, we've got a lot that are doing it. And, and so the idea is if we could have those, like you said, those multiple studios permanent here, then there's steady work for people on all those behind the scenes jobs. Is there any advice that you could give students right now that are interested in getting into this industry? You know, how can they take advantage of these opportunities that are starting to arise? Um, again, our our, um, our film program is run by Johnny McAllister and Annie Silverstein, and uh, they're, they're very well connected into the film and television industry. And just as a little bit of a background, um, 15, 18 years ago, when I first became chair of theater and dance, um, Tom Copeland was the longtime head of the Texas Film Commission. And when he and he was a Texas State alum, so when he retired, he came back to work with us over in theater, and his goal was to build a film program. And Tom knew everybody in the industry. Again, he'd worked on over $3 billion worth of films. And so he was always very good at helping place students into these different internships. We had students who worked on Terrence Malick's Tree of Life that you know won the uh, uh, Palm d'Or at Cannes, was an Academy Award nominated, a variety of other films and stuff like that. And so then Johnny has helped pick that up to help really place students into these different things. So we've, we've got a network uh, out there. And again, just as an example, uh, uh, Johnny and Annie, their most recent film, uh, Bowl, uh, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. That there's only, um, they were in the uncertain regard as kind of the emerging filmmaker category. There was only 16 films across the world selected and only three from the U.S., and one of those was by two Texas State film professors. Oh, wow. And on it, they had six alum, actually six, at the time, was current students working on the film uh, do it. And then Annie's a recent Guggenheim winner. Um, again, they're, they're well-connected. Right now, uh, they're writing for, uh, Ava DuVernay has a, a new TV series on stars coming up, and so they've been writing for that. And so, again, and again, we also then have a bunch of... Um, 
part-time, 75-50% of filmmakers that are on our faculty, that are, are again, more independent filmmakers, uh, some documentaries, some in, you know, straight films. And so, again, it is working professionals that are the film faculty here at Texas And I've got a, a, two other young alums that were just working on um, Martin Scorsese's uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. And, again, that was when they one student got on it as a thing, and then they needed more help, and she said, hey, I've got someone else to recommend, and Scorsese and his team hired, and that's Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, you know, film. And so, again, they're getting in on the ground floor of these different things. And for the last 10, 15 years, from Tom on through Johnny, is that when a major production has come here, they would hire more of our students as interns than they would from, say, UT. Are there any long-term partnerships that are in development or any sorts of programs or programming that, that you can kind of speak to? Um, we, we've talked about some different possibilities of, again, internships, actual job placement on it. Um, some other training and, and use of the studios. And, and some of it, again, we've had preliminary conversations, but they really need to, I mean, they're hoping to break ground on the studio, I think this court, you know, sometime this fall, and really opening late 24, early 25. And so we've kind of put some of those conversations on pause because they've got to get the business up and going. You know, it's a $260 million project. And so they've got investors to answer to, and they need to get those facilities up uh, to really bring in these different production uh, companies. And the other thing, you're, you're talking about all these different studios coming up. What's interesting is there is still a huge demand for studio space. I was just having a conversation um, a couple nights ago. Uh, Fred Poston is a, he's on my Friends of Fine Arts Communication board, and he was a longtime TV film executive and things like that. And he was having a conversation with uh, one of the top people at Apple TV. And Apple TV was desperately looking for more studio space to film their stuff. Because as we all know, all these different streaming companies, they need need, need these space. So um, again, we, there, there, there's no saturation yet of, of these film and TV studios. And, and as a matter again, which ones fully get up and running. And so to me, they've, they've got to get their project up and going. And then we'll be able to you know, more fully partner with them. But, but the fact that they brought in the Netflix executive, Kevin Barr, to meet us as part of, hey, they're pitching, and they were trying to recruit him here. He, he used to work for Pinewood in Georgia, and then he was at Netflix, and basically he helps build out production studios. So they've brought him as their chief operating officer or, or some title like that. Where do you see San Marcos in, in five, 10 years with, with this industry coming in? Now, th- again, this is very, very exciting. This is, and again, partly, again, their, their pitch to people is that, you know, we're at the heart of the innovation corridor. And, and so I think it will have a, a very good positive economic impact on, on San Marcos. And again, you look at what's going to be the residual impact on, on restaurants, on retail and stuff, because you're going to have these different productions and different people in here uh, lodging. And so I think our, our position in between Austin and San Antonio, it will be a very attractive location for film production companies, because they said you, you've got so many different uh, possibility. I mean, now the Austin skyline is, you know, very impressive. So you, you need that establishing shot of, of the city. You got that. You've got the rolling hills. You've got, you know, water, nature. You know, you, you've got a variety of different things all in a very close proximity as far as filmmaking is going. And then, you know, I, again, out at the studio, not only do they have the 12 sound stages, they're going to have four uh, workshops, which is where you build the sets and all, all the different things. And so they're going to have all that support material for the behind the scenes things that you need. I mean, this is, if this fully comes to be, because there's, there's two, you know, there's two phases, uh, again, this will truly be a game changer for San Marcos, for Central Texas, and, and for us at Texas State.
So, Rodney, what did you think about that? Oh, I'm really excited, man. Thanks so much for choosing this topic for our first episode. You know, like after talking to Dr. Mace, I'm really feeling a lot better about how the environmental concerns are being managed. And I'm excited for the opportunities that our students are going to have. Yeah, and what's even more exciting is that the final authorization was approved by the San Marcos Council members while we were doing the interviews. So this is official. Hill Country oh. Studios are coming to San Marcos. All right, progress happening. You got the next episode. What are you going to be talking about? Oh, we're going to be talking about jury duty. We're going to show all of you how everything you know from Law and & Order and CSI is not exactly accurate. See you guys next month. Yeah, thanks for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Division of Marketing and Communication at Texas State University. Podcasts appearing on the Texas State Podcast Network represent the views of the host and guest and not of Texas State University.